Amen. All right, we come back to Hebrews 6 today. If you have your Bibles, please be turning there. And uh, as you do, we uh, want to think about where we've been, what we've been thinking about for quite some time. Uh, but we've been in one of the most discussed and debated and probably most concerned over passages in all the scriptures. It's a serious warning, a stern warning. We see why people take it seriously. They should take it seriously. It's there to be taken seriously, clearly, the way it's worded. There's no question about that. It's a warning in Hebrews against apostasy, against turning away from Christ, uh, walking away from the faith, and it has with it the consequences of doing so. It's a serious warning, as we've said. The Holy Spirit, working through this author, has fashion an argument over time that leads us to several key points. First of all, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament pictures. It all points to Him. He is the sum of it. He is what is revealed by it. He is pointed to through it. Moses, Joshua, right? All of these. Aaron, they all point to a greater fulfillment in Christ. They are Great and godly men, but they are not Jesus. They point to Him. All those pictures. The law is fulfilled in Christ. Everything is pointing to Jesus. So that's point one. He is incalculably greater than all of those things. So again, if we understand that, then we, bring, we come to the second point this author has been working through, which is you've claimed to have accepted all of that. You've claimed to have believed all of that. You've claimed to have fully understood it. You've claimed to say, yes, I I get your argument. Aaron wasn't enough. I needed another priesthood. Not the the Old Testament priesthood, but a, a different priesthood. I need a greater high priest. I was in need of that. The Old Testament sacrifices weren't enough. They were pointing forward to something greater than themselves. I have come to believe that and accept that. I needed something more, and that more is what was pointed to through the Old Testament. It It's Jesus, right? His person and work. He is what I need. He is the one pointed to in all those things. He is the true lamb. He is the Passover, Paul says, right? He is the lamb of God. He is the one through whom we can be reconciled, that atonement can be made. It is Jesus, and he's the priest we need, not Aaron. Aaron points to him. Aaron was great in one sense, but but Aaron points to the need of a greater priesthood. That's where this author wants to go, right? That's where he stopped, put the brakes on, and said, there's much more that needs to be said here. And I want to say it, but you're not ready to hear it because you've become dull of hearing. So again, not only is it true that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things, He is the end, the aim, the goal, the point. He is all those things, but you claim to know that and believe it. And then having claimed all of that, this would be our third point. You're flirting with the idea of walking away. Talking about it, thinking about it, I'm not sure how he knew this, if this was revealed by the Spirit, or they were openly saying, we may go back to the synagogue. But you are, at this point, after saying that you recognize your need of Jesus, recognize your need to be amongst the people of God, purchased by the blood of Christ, you're saying, yeah, but maybe I'll walk away. And not just walk away, but basically make a public profession that you don't need Jesus. You don't need to be a part of the church. You don't need what he accomplished. That you can go back to Judaism. You can go back to the synagogue and it be sufficient. 
Now, whether or not you would say it verbally, this author says you're saying it with your testimony by what you're doing. Your actions are testifying that Jesus is not enough. And so again, at this point, there is a question about the validity of your confession, he's saying. This is the whole point of this letter. There's a doubt about the validity of your confession. Well, why would we say that? Well, there's many things that we would start with. But the basic point is, how could a born-again believer being sanctified by the Holy Spirit do that? Walk away from Jesus, say, I don't need to be identified with, with Christ or His people. I can be identified back with Moses. That's enough. How, can, how could a Christian do that? A person born again, regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God, being sanctified, how could that happen? And I think his answer is, it can't happen. It would not happen. And so again, that's the first point. But it's backed up by points this author's been making along the way, like the fact that you're not growing. There's no fruit. There's no evidence. Where does that come into play? Well, there are some, certain things hinted at along the way, but in the text we read today, it says it. It says you've become dull of hearing. It's the idea that we see in Matthew 13 of, of those soils that seem to get a good start, but then fall away. You seem to get a good start. Your testimony, you came <clears throat> in among us and you testified to believing all these things and you seem to get a good start, but lately there's a change. Something's changing. You become dull of hearing. You who once seemed so eager to hear and to learn and to grow, now you don't. Here, there are things that this author wants to say and he cannot say because he said, you've grown lazy or dull of hearing and you should have grown beyond where you are now. He says, you ought to be teaching. You ought to be teachers, plural, the the group of people to whom he's speaking here. You should have been teachers, but now you've come to the point where you need elementary school of the faith again. Again, these are the charges that are being levied. They're not separable from what's being said in chapter 6. It's based on these things. Look at the first word of chapter 6. Therefore, based on these things, here's the warning you need to hear and heed. You're not growing. You're not hearing. You're not heeding. You're not listening. Your spiritual ears seem to have disappeared somewhere along the line. You're changing and you need to listen to what's being said while there's yet time. So, overall here, there's a a charge that your testimony is not congruent with the way you're living or the evidence of your walk with Christ. And again, I think this author says, uh, not directly, but it's the the argument here that uh, this is incompatible with a regenerate heart. This is incompatible with a, a person who's being conformed to the image of Christ, who's being transformed by the Spirit of God, who's being sanctified, these things are not compatible. And so there's this serious warning given here that we've been looking at. Now, the best case scenario, we've said this a number of times, but it's important to remember this, the best case scenario, you're just being negligent, irresponsible, you're not growing as you should, you're not taking your faith seriously. None of that is good, right? But that's the better answer. The other answer this author gives is, you're not a Christian at all. You came into the fellowship of believers, but you were never one of us. You talked a good game, you seemed to have some growth, but you never were truly born again. Never were you being sanctified by the Spirit of God. 
Now that is a serious thing to consider. And so there is a stern and fearful warning. We tried to say two weeks ago, I know last week we had a Mother's Day sermon. Two weeks ago we tried to say, who is this addressed to? Because people read this and they get very scared. Well, you have to look at what's been said here. This is a people who have heard everything. They've been in for two or three years in solid uh, in, in a solid fellowship of believers. They've heard the gospel. They've heard how all the things of the Old Testament led to the things of the New Testament, how it all works together. They heard all of it. They recognized their need of it. They said, Jesus is the one we need. Jesus. I put my faith in Him. Not by works of human hands. Right? Only by Jesus can I be saved. And now you're saying, you know, this Jesus thing is a little uncomfortable Maybe I can go back to the synagogue and give a public testimony that you don't need Jesus. So again, this author is tying all this together in a way that might be uncomfortable for us, but we need to think about it. This picture of fruitlessness being tied to this idea of apostasy, and so we have to look at it together. So again, we want to read our text and we'll jump right in. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrines of baptisms, of the laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Now there's obvious a stern warning here, an illustration given to us today a reminder of the seriousness of this text. And as we think about it, I want us to look at these two points, very simple, a blessed fruitfulness and a cursed rebellion. And so as we look at verses 7 and 8, I'm going to ask you to keep that in mind. And we're going to begin with the idea of a blessed fruitfulness. Now, sometimes you hate saying what has to be said over and over again, but I want to start immediately with a notice here. We are not saying in any way that the fruitfulness that's being spoken of in this text is something that earns us salvific merit before God. That is not the argument of the author here. We're speaking here of the fruit which the Scriptures picture as the normal, the normal outworking of the Holy Spirit at work within us. Being a regenerated people by God's grace, being sanctified by the Holy Spirit, we are to see fruit. This is what the Scriptures tell us. A people who are born again by the Spirit of God should see growth and fruitfulness. Now, that's been made evident just in this text, right? By now, you shouldn't be dull of hearing. You should be hearing and heeding. You should be growing and teaching. You should be fruitful. And the fact that you're not has led this author to be very concerned about where you're at. And so, again, this is the normal expectation. In fact, it's being seen as an evidence, if you will, of regeneration and sanctification. First, regeneration. Because, again, the question here is, if... This fruitlessness that we've been seeing of recent is matched by you walking away from the faith. Then what does it tell us? It tells us you weren't a Christian. 
That's what it says. That's what the author is arguing here. The combination of fruitlessness and apostasy is basically a clear sign. A clear sign. Now, if we were going to see the full sweep of that argument, we'd have to return to the argument that's being built throughout this text. But what's the major picture given to us over the last couple of chapters? The Exodus. The wilderness generation. A generation that seemed to be with the people of God. They were certainly among the people of God, however you want to account that, as they left Egypt, Israel left Egypt, and there were many people who were a part of that crowd. And yet, the record we're given in the Scriptures is not a faithfulness, but a faithlessness. Over and over again, God gives commands, and it meets with grumbling and unbelief. And we see this time and again. In fact, the the psalm we read this morning said what? They always go astray, right? They do not listen. They do not obey. They, time and again, have been called to repentance and they will not repent. These are a people who have not known the ways of God. Now, that's a serious charge when they're among the people of God who God is leading out and directing the entire way. They have seen His signs, His powers, His workings, He says. They have seen my workings and yet they do not believe. Now, again, that's a serious charge. What does God say about them? They will not enter my rest. They will not receive the reward that is meant for the righteous, for the faithful. They will not receive that which is promised to the people of God. Because although they would try to account themselves as the children of Abraham, they missed the most important thing, which is the faith of Abraham. The faith of Abraham. Paul tells us that in the New Testament, doesn't he? That it's those that have the faith of Abraham that are accounted as the children of Abraham. So again, we need to recognize that this point in the text is, here are people who leave Egypt... They're in this group. They are uh, outwardly, if you will, the people of God. And yet the evidence is they weren't the people of God, or at least most of them weren't. Many of them weren't, we could certainly say, because they died outside the promise. They died in the wilderness. And that's tied by this author to obedience. We can point to many examples. What's the example the author chooses to point to through his scriptural citations? That moment... When the spies return and say, it's everything God told us it was. It's there for the taking. Joshua and Caleb, it's there for the taking. And the other ten spies say, we can't take it. We're we're not strong enough. There's, There's men that are giants who are guarding the land, and we are but grasshoppers before them. We'll be crushed like bugs if we go in there and try to take the land. And Joshua and Caleb say, if God is with us, who can stand against us? If God has promised it, what man can nullify the promise of God? What group of men, what army, what army of giants can nullify the promise of God? If God has promised it to us, let's go take it. Now that is the response of faith. That's Joshua and Caleb. That is the answer of faith. But the other ten are very persuasive. We could go through all that we've said about um, a day late, Uh, deciding, well, we'll go up and take the land now after God has told them not to. Uh, Just over and over, when they have the opportunity for obedience or rebellion, they just rebel over and again. And God says it's an evidence of what's in their heart. So being fruitless, thankless, rebelling against the living God is this evidence of rebellion against God. And this author says the same thing in this generation. You know, it's throughout the Scriptures. We can find evidence throughout the Scriptures. But in this generation, it's the same thing. Well, how do you show thanklessness and rebellion to God? 
you say, I don't need Christ. I'll walk away. I'll walk away having heard the gospel, having heard the scriptures, having been amongst the people of God, seen all those evidences that are listed in this text. Over and again, listed in this text, all those things that they have tasted and seen and experienced, and they're going to walk away. Now again, we know we've argued at length what this would mean. But he's saying that's how you would do it. It would show concrete evidence of your heart, which is that you were never born again. You've never been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. You're not one of us. If you can walk away from this wondrous identification with Christ, whatever it may cost us, whatever it may cost us. And you know, in our generation, we're having to ask, right, what would we be willing to suffer? Things are changing. We recognize that in the world. We recognize that it may cost us something to be identified with Christ. So this speaks to us today as we consider these things. Or would we walk away if it became unpopular? Well, I guess it's already unpopular, but if it became dangerous to be a Christian, would we walk away? All of this has been said to us. There's a danger, it's saying, to those who would hear and see and taste and be around all of this and walk away. That's the entire point that we're getting here. And to make this illustration clear to us what this would mean, the author goes to an illustration or a picture. And it's a popular picture. It's something that we see often in the Scriptures, don't we? Soils and grounds and lands, these are given to us many, many times in the Scriptures. And here's another example of it given to us. I want you to listen really quickly to what he says one more time. For the earth, again, after all this warning, he gives this illustration. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it's cultivated receives blessing from God. But it, if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed whose end is to be burned. Now I want us to focus for a minute on verse 7 as we are in this first point of blessed fruitfulness. When you think about this for a minute, minute, here is a land that is drinking the water. Right? It rains upon the land. This is a natural principle. I don't have to explain this to you, right? There is rain, and the rain falls upon the ground, and the ground soaks it or drinks it is the, the wording that's used here. It absorbs it. Now, that's something we see in the real world. We understand this. But what is the purpose of God giving that rain? It's to replenish and grow the earth and to grow uh, plants and, and all of this life that is sustained by the rain. And so he gives this rain. It says this, it drinks the rain that often comes upon it. This is a picture of blessing, isn't it? In fact, you can also often look through the scriptures and see that, that rain is seen as a sign of blessing, right? The sign of, of the thing you don't want is for it to stop raining, right? For there to be drought, which is often pictured as God's judgment upon lands, in fact, it's often prophesied that way, isn't it? That uh, you will have drought. There will not be rain. Uh, the, the sky shall lock up and no rain shall fall. And so again, we need to recognize that this picture of the rain is God's providence in providing for our needs. Without rain, we would very quickly die. I mean, I don't know how long it would take, but plant life would go away. There'd be drought. There'd be no food. We recognize this. God has provided graciously for our needs our physical needs in this way. And so this rain pictures blessing. Now, of course, this is an illustration of a spiritual matter, isn't it? There is a sense in which God has given blessings to the people that are being talked about in this text. Well, what are those blessings? Well, read it again. He says here that they have been enlightened, 
They have tasted the heavenly gift. They have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. They have tasted the good work of God, the powers of the age to come. All those things we've talked about as to what they mean. But they've been around the Word of God. They've heard the gospel. They've heard it explained in depth. They have seen how the Old Testament points to all of this. They see how Jesus is the fulfillment of all those Old Testament truths. None of which God owed them. God didn't owe them sending Jesus. Right? So all these things are blessings that they've received, just as the rain. None of us can charge God if He doesn't send rain. He doesn't owe us rain. He gives us rain graciously. And in the same way here, we receive these gifts graciously. And they have received them. That's the very charge here. You've received those things. The rain has fallen upon this ground. And if it bears herbs, right? if it bears these herbs, botane, vegetation, botanicals, if it bears forth vegetation, then it's done its purpose. Why does God send rain? Ultimately to feed us, right? By His grace to feed us. If there is no rain, there are no herbs, there are no vegetables, there are no, well, if there's no, none of that, then there's no animals either, right? It all ends very quickly. And so again, God by His grace is providing for our needs in the same way God has given these things by His grace for our good. Now here's where it gets to an important point here. If then it brings forth something useful cultivated by man, again, you get the idea here of men out working in the field, cultivating, bringing forth a harvest, then guess what? That is a sign of the blessing of God. Whenever we have food, the reason we owe God thanksgiving is because He's provided it for us. That's something forgotten today, isn't it? But this is what this text is addressing. You can't make the ground bring forth a harvest. No matter how much you think you can, in your pride and arrogance, God is the one who provides all that's needed for that to occur. And every time you eat the fruit of the earth, whether that be bread or whether that be meat that comes from eating that vegetation or whether that comes from herbs or whatever it may be, if you don't recognize that you owe God thanksgiving for it, then you've missed the primary argument of this text, which is the ground brings forth things, yes, because it's cultivated, but without water it wouldn't matter. You can go out there and plow all you want. Without moisture, nothing's going to grow. And so again, you get this picture here of God's grace. There is a cultivation. Now we would ask ourselves, who's cultivating? Well, I think then since this is a sign of growth, maturing in the faith, this is what the parallel is, I think the one cultivating is the Holy Spirit of God, sanctifying you, right? Again, for you to bring forth fruit, it requires, first of all, the blessing of God in all these things that have been talked about, knowledge of the things of God, conviction by the Holy Spirit, understanding the gospel. All of these things are necessary. But then for you to bring forth fruit, the Holy Spirit has to be at work in you, sanctifying you. Now, that is a cooperative venture in terms of sanctification. We are given commands, aren't we, that we are to do. We must be mortifying sin in the flesh, and we can go through many examples. But again, without the Holy Spirit at work in you, you can't clean yourself up enough, can you? doesn't matter how much you do. There is no way to make yourself acceptable. And so again, as you look at all of this, there's a picture here that we would understand of good ground. Good ground. This is not a new principle, is it? Matthew chapter 13, there's a parable of soils, right? Seeds are broadcasted out upon different soils. And the good soil does what? 
brings forth a harvest. Right? Brings forth a harvest. Again, this is not a divorce picture throughout the Scriptures. Always, where there's a sign of God at work, there is fruit coming forth. There is fruit coming forth. We could turn to John chapter 15, and we'll see this principle expressed by Christ Himself. Jesus says in John 15, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Please consider that for a moment. God is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. He cuts it away. This is a basic principle, isn't it, of of gardening, right? If you have a branch that's unproductive, you cut it off. Don't let it take nutrients away from the plant. You cut it off. These are the things that gardeners know something about. I'm not a gardener. I know a little bit by reading. But, uh, but again, this is something we just know. It's, it's just truth. He takes it away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, trims it in such a way as to spur it to grow. To spur it to grow. So even where there's growth, he's not satisfied with that. He wants more growth. That's the point here. You're already clean because... Of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. We could argue Hebrews right here couldn't we? If you're not connected to Christ. Then you're not going to be fruitful in the way that we're talking about here. This is why he says if you walk away you give us evidence you were never connected. You were never connected. I am the vine Jesus says. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit doesn't say should, doesn't say can. It says, whoever abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. And again, listen to the parallel argument again. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and they throw them into the fire and they are burned. They are burned. Now, That brings us right to the point we want to get to in moving into our second point, which is a cursed rebellion. Because as we think about this just for a moment, here is the exact wording that we would think of. And this is, again, natural wording. What do you do with all the branches you've cut away? What do you do with all the agricultural product that you've cut away because it's not productive? It's not fruitful. You burn it, right? You pile it up and you burn it. Um, This is something that probably... A generation or two earlier that had a lot of farm experience would recognize, right? You gather all this up in a big pile and you burn it. This is nothing that would surprise any hearer or reader of this in times past. That's what you would do. This is a natural principle that anybody would understand. And the Word of God gives us images like this. Gives us images like this. Now, we could point to many places that would make us think about this. John 15, we already mentioned uh, Matthew 13. But one of the most important that we're given is Isaiah chapter 5. I'm going to ask you to turn there if you have your Bible. If you don't have one, remember Isaiah 5 and go and read it later. Now, Isaiah 5, I think, is the section that this author is actually thinking about as he's saying this illustration that he's giving us. Now listen to this. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones. He planted it with with the choicest of vines. He built a tower in its midst, and he also made a winepress in it, 
So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem. So we have, first of all, the picture, right, of the clearing of a land, of the preparation of a land, of expecting a fruitful vineyard, and yet it hasn't brought forth good grapes, but wild grapes. Now he's going to apply. We don't have to wonder what this means. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. I think this is the author's intention is to have them think about this famous passage from Isaiah. These are Jewish Christians. These are people who came out of the Jewish faith. They would be familiar with Isaiah, certainly, and with this famous passage. And what is it saying? It's God defending himself, isn't it, ultimately? He says, I've done everything for you, Judah. I've done everything for you, O inhabitants of Jerusalem. What more could you require? What more could you say I owed you? Well, first of all, they, didn't, they weren't owed anything at all. But God is saying, look at all the gracious things I did. I, I dug it up. I, I cleared out the stones. I cleared the field. I, I made it perfect. I prepared it, if you will. I did all these things. So what excuse do you have? That's the argument here of Hebrews. You've tasted all the things. When that day of judgment comes, what excuse will you have? Now, we're going to come to the full meaning of this in just a moment. But again, look at the warning here that's being given to us. It didn't bring forth the fruit that God desires. And what will he do? He will no longer have it separated out by the hedge, if you will. It's no longer going to be its own thing. It's going to be... Uh, taken down it's going to be trampled down it's going to have no rain upon it this sign of blessing no rain upon it and then he says it will bring up briars and thorns it's interesting isn't it when you read verse 8 this is the exact thing that he says but if it bears thorns and briars now we could go back to genesis this was the cursing of the earth right that it would bring forth briars and thorns but again isaiah says the same thing this is what will happen to a land that god a people in a land that God is cursing. And here it says this, it is rejected and near to being cursed. Now, it's important to recognize that near is not giving the idea of hope. Like if you're down this alley, you can make a U-turn. What it's saying is its time is close to being cursed, which he is saying, what? Being burned. Its end is being burned. And so again, that's where it's headed. That's where it's headed. And so these are these pictures of two soils that are being given to us. A biblical picture of cursed ground that is to be burnt. Spiritual interpretation here would be a people who are not redeemed. right? A people who are not the people of God. If we were to turn back to Isaiah, I shouldn't have closed my Bible so quickly. He goes through after this the charges against that generation, doesn't he? They attach field to field. They do not obey his commands. They don't care anything about justice where God told them to be just. They don't care anything about doing what God has commanded. They are a disobedient and rebellious generation. And God says, I've had enough. You've had every advantage. And now disaster will fall upon you. Now, 
again, we see this. Now, one last thing to consider is this picture of blessed ground being fruitful. You know, in Genesis, as God creates the earth, it's a fruitful earth, isn't it? It brings forth a harvest, almost without a whole lot of effort. It just brings forth what man needs to be sustained. That's the picture of the Garden of Eden. But when the fall occurs and God curses the earth, in toil and in labor shall it bring anything at all, right? It'll be hard work now to bring forth anything, and it will bring forth thorns and briars, these things easily. And that's what we see here. So again, notice the difference. The fruitfulness is tied to the blessing of God. And what we see here in verse 8 of thorns and briars is connected to the curse of God. And again, this is a clear representation that they would understand to mean, are you in Christ or are you in Adam? Which are you in? Because again, if you walk away after all that God has done for you, you show that you are this ground that is not worthy of His time at all, which would obviously be true. And so again, you go back to this point that he's saying here, you're destined to be burned. I want to bring this to a close by having us think for a moment about what this is ultimately about. Because again, um, we've got a lot to deal with here. And this isn't an easy text to, to put together, but we need to try to put it together. This is a warning this author believes to Christians. To Christians. How do we know that? Well, we've walked through this time and again. He calls them brothers. He calls them partakers of the heavenly calling. He gives them all these warnings. He is saying to them, I believe that you are among the people of God. I believe that you are a regenerated believer in Christ. The Holy Spirit has redeemed you. Christ has redeemed you, atoned for you. I believe that you are with us. But there are some troubling things. You're not growing. You're not hearing. You're not heeding. And if you walk away, you show that you were never with us. Again, please hear that. You didn't lose your salvation. You never had salvation. You never belonged to Christ. You were like those in the wilderness who were with the people of God but weren't the people of God. Those that died outside the promised land. You'd be like those in Isaiah's day who were in Jerusalem, who were in Judah, who seemed to be amongst the people of God but who were proven to not be amongst the people of God by their actions and by the state of their heart. He says, I pray I'm not wrong about you. I pray that your actions don't prove that you are not with us, that you were never with us. But here's the sure way we're going to find out. If you walk away, if you apostatize in this sense, having heard all, received all, knowing all, if you say, I don't want Jesus now. He says there is no coming back from that. There is no coming back from that. And who can you blame? God? What more could be revealed to you? You walked away. This is much like the canons of Dort on the, the soils, which we went through not long ago in Matthew 13. The parable of the soils is to show you it's nothing wrong with the sower or the soil, but the ground is the problem. And here again, he says the field is the problem. A sinful, obstinate, rebellious soil which brings forth briars and brings forth thorns is the problem. And again, if you walk away, you show us that that is who you are. So that warning is given to us for a couple of reasons. Number one, that we need to heed it. 
I doubt there's a person here who hasn't heard the gospel dozens of times, who doesn't have a Bible in their home, who doesn't have the ability to go to church or uh, listen to the things, to good solid preaching on the radio or on the internet or on wherever. Right? We have access to all these blessings. And what he's reminding us is that doesn't mean you're automatically in. You can be very near, even for many, many years. This is not the point of Pilgrim's Progress. At the end with people like Ignorance, who have made it all the way, almost to the celestial city itself. And everybody would say, or some would say, well, he must be on his way properly. There's a warning here. Be careful that you haven't come near the harbor. Do you remember that illustration from chapter 2? That you haven't come near the harbor, but only to find yourself sail right past it. Again, there's a warning here for us for obvious reasons. But we shouldn't assume that this is a warning given to anyone other than Christians. This is a warning given to us. Why? Because we ought to heed it. (laughs) We ought to be the ones who hear this and recognize the fearful state of what it's telling us. If we don't understand what it means when it says, whose end is to be burned, and that doesn't make us say, I don't want to be identified with those people. That's not who I want to be pictured with. Then I think it would argue there's something wrong, right? We don't recognize uh, the, the warning of the text. This is a warning given to Christians. We've talked about this over and over again. I read this week, Spurgeon said, it's like telling a child who comes near a precipice. There's no rail. And you tell him, son, if you're not careful, you're going to fall and be dashed to pieces. Why do you say that? That the fearful nature of what could happen is taken as a warning and actions are corrected. Don't touch the stove. You'll be burned. Right? Don't play in the road. You might get run over. But there are warnings that we give, right? We say, if you're not careful, this could happen with the idea that that warning would be fearful enough as to correct the behavior, check the behavior. And that's what's being done here. These Christians, we're praying that they're Christians. This author assumes that they're Christians, and we're going to see that next week. You know, we talk about chapter 6 being so frightful, and it is. But look at verse 9. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. We don't think we're speaking to thorny ground here. We don't think we're speaking right to this briary ground. We don't think we're speaking to ground that's about to be burned. We think we're speaking to good ground that's just kind of got off track. But then this warning is for you, brother. This warning is for you, sister. Hear it. Recognize the urgency in it and correct what you're doing. If you were amongst the people of God, hear the warning. Heed the warning. Today is a day of repentance. And that's especially true if you're His. Repent of your sin. Repent of your your deafness of, of hearing. You're not heeding the Word of God. And do as God instructs us to do. And with His help we can.